we know that we are actually coming into the middle of a story, right? The narrative that was begun in chapter 5. In chapter 5, we witnessed the, the setting up of a showdown. God makes his declaration in, in chapter 5, verse 1, thus says the Lord. By the time we get to the 10th verse, we have the counter from Pharaoh. Thus says Pharaoh. A battle of the gods is brewing here. A clash of the titans is imminent. And the question is, who will prevail? Who will win? Out of the gate, it seems like Pharaoh has the upper hand. It seems like he's more powerful because he defies God's word to let the Israelites go. And nothing really happens to him. And he becomes even more harsh toward the Israelites in his treatment of them. Things are not going the way Moses thought they should go or thought they would go. And so as we exit chapter 5, Moses is discouraged. Now last week we wondered a bit about what Moses might have been thinking, what he thought was going to happen when he approached Pharaoh with God's words. Did he think that the most powerful man in the world was simply going to bow down and release all his free labor because of the words of a God whose name he didn't know and a God he had never met? Before we get too far into the narrative this morning, it might be worthwhile to ponder what might have happened if Moses had been successful in his first meeting with Pharaoh. You see, the, the hardness of Pharaoh's heart that resulted in the many miracles of God, which demonstrated God's power, solidified the eventual exodus as, a, as an undeniable miracle orchestrated by nothing less than the mighty hand of God. No man could make it happen. This is God's business. By the way, the Israelites are just kind of getting to know this God. They're just getting introduced to him, and Moses is starting to understand him as well. This God's intention was for his people to leave Egypt, to be liberated from their slavery in order that they might worship him. He says it many times in the book of Exodus, let my people go that they may serve me. Let my people go that they may worship me. Now, if Moses had been successful on his first try before Pharaoh, who do you suppose the Hebrews would worship? Think, of, think about it. Almost assuredly, if Moses and not God uh, were to get the credit for the exodus, Moses would have been lauded as the Savior. He, he would have been practically coronated. They would have basically crowned him if he, through his challenge to Pharaoh, was perceived to have been the one to lift the burden of generations of slavery off the backs of the Israelites. Now, maybe that would have made Moses feel better. You know, they would have accepted him. They would have rejoiced in him. They may even have lifted him up a bit, and he would have felt better about how things were going. But think about it. It would have defeated the whole purpose of the exodus. So there was wisdom in things happening for Moses the way that they did. 
Just as there's often wisdom in the things that happen to us, in the ways that they happen to us, that we don't understand. We may not necessarily like and we don't even have to agree with, but we must know there is wisdom behind it. God's wisdom. God's wisdom. Moses doesn't see it. He doesn't see it that way. And so at the close of chapter 5, he's very discouraged. He's asking God, why did you ever send me? Why did you put me in this place? And he's accusing God, saying, you haven't done anything at all to deliver your people. In obedience, Moses had gone to Pharaoh just as God had told him and delivered that word. He told Pharaoh what God told him to tell him. And you know what happened. It made things worse instead of better. Not only did Pharaoh not do what God demanded, he turned around and he made the hard life of the Israelite slaves even harder. So Moses is rebuked by Pharaoh and he's rejected by his own people. And it seems to be very clear that as he feared all along, he's not able to lead these Israelites out of Egypt. He suffers from something that you and I can suffer from from time to time at least, and that's not having the big picture in mind. We just don't always have the big picture in mind. We don't know what God is up to. We may draw some conclusions about it, and we may think we do, but Moses doesn't know what really is happening here. And he suffers also from something that you and I may suffer from from time to time. It seems like Moses maybe is a little bit too much inside his own head. You ever do that? Does that ever happen to you? You just get thinking too much about things. You get all riled up. And so he needs a dose here of divine grace. He needs God to come in and rescue the rescuer in this situation. And he also needs something else that we need from time to time. He needs a little recalibration. Uh, At least I need a recalibration. Maybe you don't. But I'm guessing that most of us can benefit from time to time for the Lord sort of setting us straight and getting us back on the path because we have this penchant to wander and presume and assume. So Moses needs both of these things. He needs grace and he needs recalibration and God is so good. He doesn't get angry with Moses even though Moses is accusing him of picking the wrong guy and not doing anything when all along he's doing something. And he graciously provides for Moses what he needs. Now it sounds simple but initially God just reminds Moses who he's dealing with. In verse 2, he tells him, I am the Lord. He repeats that in verse 6, verse 7, again in verse 8. And whenever we're reading Scripture and we encounter these kind of repetitions, we've got to know uh, that, that those repetitions are in there for a reason, right? That an important point is being made. If you're the kind of person who likes to, to write in a Bible or take notes on the margin... I personally like to circle repetitions when I'm studying a passage. If I see a particular word or phrase that goes over and over again when I'm studying a passage, I circle it. A lot of times it gives us a clue as to what that passage is about. And certainly part of this passage in Exodus 6 is about reminding Moses, and ultimately through Moses us, who we're dealing with. Moses needed to know that he was dealing with the Lord. 
that he was dealing with God, that he wasn't just dealing with any God, that he wasn't just dealing with a God, like on par with the Egyptian deities that Pharaoh knew, and he wasn't just dealing with Pharaoh, who himself was regarded by many as a God, but he's dealing with the Lord. He's dealing with the God, the Lord, the one, the only the true, all-powerful maker and ruler of all things. God needed to remind Moses, listen, this is who I am. I am the Lord. And furthermore, I can be trusted, God is saying, because he's a God who keeps his promises, and he raises those promises up, and he says, I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the one who made this covenant long ago. I'm the one who is remembering now my word. I've decided it's time to act on it. I have heard your groaning. I have seen your affliction. My eyes are on you. You can trust me. I have you in my hands. Now is the time for me to move. Moses had to be reminded who he was dealing with. You know what? Every once in a while, we ought to be reminded, I think, of who we are dealing with as well. In fact, that is one way for us to combat the anxiety that we feel in life. It's simply to remember the Lord. When we are exasperated, when we are overwhelmed, when we are confused, when we are feeling like we can't do it or we can't make it, it is always good to lift our circumstances from our uh, lift our eyes from our circumstances and place them on the Lord. You know, much of anxiety happens to us when we lose sight of the fact, we lose touch with the fact of how great God is and how powerful God is. But the psalmist tells us, don't let that happen. In Psalm 46 tells us, to not be afraid. It doesn't matter what's happening. God is in control and he will be exalted. He tells us to stop striving. He tells us to stop being afraid. He tells us to be still and know that he is God. So when trouble comes, we need to know that God, God, God graciously reminds Moses of this. I am the Lord. I'm the God who keeps his promises. And in our text today, we find him also to be a God, not only who keeps his promises, but a God who's willing to make promises. He doesn't just tell Moses who he is. He tells Moses what he's going to do. And in this way, honestly, Moses gets more than you and I tend to get from God. I mean, God doesn't usually send me a road map of how it's going to play out. I, I don't know any of you who really have, have this specific of a roadmap. This is how good and gracious and kind God is. He is, we would say that he's teeing it up for Moses. He's going he's gonna to make it as easy as possible. I'm going to give you what you need. I know how anxious you are. Let me tell you what's going to happen. There are seven pledges from God here in this text. Seven I will statements from God to Moses through verses 6 and 8. In the first part of Exodus uh, 6, verse 6, God tells Moses to tell the people of Israel, I'm the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery. I will bring you out. I will deliver you from slavery. These are promises of liberation. God is saying, I will make you free. Ultimately, we know this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who a little while later, and it's recorded in John chapter 8, says, who the Son sets free is free. Indeed. 
Next, in the latter half of verse 6, the third I will promise of God, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. This is a promise of redemption. So we have a promise of liberation. Now we have a promise of redemption. The fourth and the fifth I wills from the Lord, seen in verse 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. This is the first time in Scripture that this uh, description is used in the relationship between God and man, but it won't be the last. In fact, it emerges over and again now as, uh, as a refrain, almost like the refrain of a favorite song, that we will be his people and he will be our God. It's a promise of adoption promise of adoption, which leads naturally to the next promise, which is a promise of inheritance. The sixth and the seventh I wills from the Lord are found in verse 8. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I'll give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. I'll bring you into this land, and I'm going to give it to you. Promises of possession. So what do we have here? A couple of verses, promises of liberation, promises of redemption, promises of adoption, promises of possession, what do these teach us? Well, first of all, they tell us this is what God is all about. These are the hopes that God has for his people who are in slavery. And if they sound somewhat familiar to you, these words, I think they should, because they are also, and I hope, I hope you've figured this out, they are also the elements of the gospel. The good news of Jesus, fulfilled in Christ. Inspiring Philip Ryken to write this, the book of Exodus is not simply the history of ancient Israel. It's also the story of our salvation. As we listen to the Exodus, we hear the first strains of a melody that becomes a symphony in the Gospels. A melody that becomes a symphony in the Gospels. You see, because the compassion that moved God to free the Israelites from slavery in Egypt is the same compassion that moved him to send his son to be our Savior. Jesus came into this world not to condemn it, but to save it. He was crucified on a cross where he purchased our pardon. Hanging there in our place, he absorbed the wrath that we deserve and died the death that we have earned. And the hymn writer suggests it well, Jesus paid it all. He paid the price for our freedom so that because of him and by him, we don't have to be slaves anymore to sin, but we are free to worship. Him. We are free to serve Him with our lives. Regarding the promise of liberation, Revelation 1.5 says that Jesus is the liberator who has freed us from our sins by His blood. Regarding the promise of redemption, Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Regarding the promise of adoption, it is through Jesus that we are welcome in the presence of and the family of Almighty God and John in his gospel in the first chapter says he, Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You may have heard this and you may have believed it. You may even have perpetrated this myth that everybody in the world is a child of God. But that is not what the Bible teaches. Everybody in the world is created by God. Everybody in the world is loved by God. But not everybody is a child. Only those who receive him, according to John. Only those who have been adopted does he give the right to become children of God. 
Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians at Galatia about this change in status that we experience when we move from slavery to sin to believing in Jesus. He says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, right? I mean, that's how we're born. That's how we come into this place. And that's the condition we're in, enslaved to the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, by grace, but a son. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Rich, you're an heir through God. Regarding the promise of inheritance or possession, 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It cannot be taken away, and it is kept in heaven for you. You, that possession is John the Revelator sums up beautifully what you and I can expect in eternity because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. When he wrote about what eternity is going to be like, then suffering and pain and loss and death will be put away. And they are no more. They take their proper place. They don't belong there in that place. He writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You see, the story of the exodus of Israel from slavery in Egypt is a prelude to the deliverance of humanity from our slavery of sin. Exodus is a story of redemption from Egypt for life in the presence of God. And the gospel is a story of redemption from sin for abundant life now and eternal life in the presence of God. And behind both stories, the precursor and the one it points to is the compassion of God. Whatever you think of God today, whatever your mental picture is of God, grasp from Exodus 6, grasp from the gospel that he is a good and compassionate God who looks on us and knows that we are dust and loves us anyway. Who sees our struggles who understands our weaknesses, who hears our cries, who accepts our helplessness, and in the face of all these things, still dares to reach out his hand and say, I will save you. I will save you. 
In Exodus, he sends Moses to be the liberator of his people who are in literal physical bondage. And in the gospel, when the fullness of time had come, he sent his son Jesus to be a greater, better Moses, to be the liberator of those who are in spiritual bondage, who are in slavery to sin. That is the good news of the gospel. Jesus can set you free. The question is, do you believe it? Moses had some gospel. Moses had some good news. Seven promises God gave him. Seven commitments God made. Seven times God says to him, I will, I will, I will. But then he went and shared them with the Israelites. And they responded collectively, we won't. Chapter 6, verse 9, Moses spoke, spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh labor. That's quite a different picture than the one we encountered not too long ago in chapter 4 and verse 31. There the people had believed the word of Moses. There they had bowed down and there they had worshipped. But guess what? Things since that time have gotten harder and not easier. And the people have gotten bitter instead of better. Here we see the power of oppression. We see the power of discouragement and the power of disappointment. And what it does to our psyches. What it does to us as people. That eventually sometimes we just keep our heads down. And we don't even dare to look up. And we don't even dare to believe that there is a God who cares. And that there is a message of emancipation. That there is healing or hope. We don't want any of that stuff. Because we're so discouraged. And we're so disappointed. You know, discouragement and, and deep disappointment can become prisons in themselves. And we get stuck right there in these impenetrable places where the good news dare not be let in. The Israelites might be saying to themselves, well, we believe this once, and then look what happened. We're not going to do that again. Maybe you can relate to that today. Maybe you are a believer here today whose life has taken some hard turns, and you don't understand why. And so you question God's goodness, and you're skeptical of any message of hope and healing. Out of what you think is some kind of self-protection, you simply won't believe the promises of God. You're so far down that you don't even dare to get your hopes up. Or maybe you're a new Christian here today, and and almost as soon as you got headed in the right direction, life got immeasurably worse instead of better. You had this grand vision that if I followed Jesus, everything is going to be all smooth. Everything is going to be easy. But that's not what happened to you. Now you're questioning whether God actually is as powerful as you thought he was or whether he's as good as you first believed he was. And you're having a hard time Trusting God because the situation in your life, the situation on the ground is nowhere near what you thought it would be. You follow the Lord and it's worse instead of better. Or maybe you're here today, you're a longtime Christian, but over, over time the incessant problems of, of life have just kind of worn you down. 
Because, because sinfulness and brokenness and pain and problems are like water on a rock. Maybe you're just worn down now and you've got to this place of, of spiritual ambivalence where you still believe that God can, but you actually doubt he ever will. And as a result, you expect very little from God, and as a result, you receive very little from God. There are lots of reasons for us to be discouraged and disappointed as Moses was in this passage, as the Israelites are. But you know something? When we are discouraged, when we are broken in spirit, when we are, as it, as it were, stuck in the, in the hamster wheel of our own thinking, frustrated, maybe even falling back into self-defeating patterns of behavior, there is something, beloved, that we can do that neither Moses nor the Israelites could. You see, in order to lift their eyes and renew their faith in his goodness, God could only tell Moses and the Israelites what he would do. But today, as Christians, when we are frustrated or discouraged like they were, in order to lift our eyes and to renew our faith in the goodness of God, we don't have to look to what God will do. We need to look anew at what God has done. We need to look at what God has done. That is the proof of his love. That is the proof of his grace. That is the proof of his faithfulness. Paul says in the book of Romans, he who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously give with him all things? Everything that you need. If he's not going to spare his own son, you think he's going to keep anything back from you that you truly, truly we have to look at what God has done. So I want to close with these words from author and pastor Tim Chester from his book, Exodus for You. It's a rather lengthy uh, quote passage, so you might want to, if it's easier for you to listen and attend, just close your eyes and hear these words. He says, when you're wondering what God is doing, when you doubt his kindness, when you're struggling to trust him, when life gets harder rather than better, look to the wooden cross and the empty tomb. See how God keeps his promises. You have seen that he is the Lord who rules the world. It didn't look like that at the cross. It looked like Satan ruled or that chaos won or that evil people triumphed. But in fact, they did, according to Acts 4.28, what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. God used the defeat and weakness and folly of the cross to bring salvation. When you're wondering what God is doing, when you doubt his kindness, when you're struggling to trust him, when life gets harder rather than better, look to the cross. See how God brings triumph from defeat. You have seen that he is the Lord who redeems his people from death to give them life. Colossians 1, 13 to 14 says, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption. 1 John 4.10 says, This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It is at the cross that our redemption is secured, and it is at the cross that his loving care is written out in large letters across the canvas of history. God had promised, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with acts of judgment. Ultimately, that promise found its fulfillment as Jesus died. The arms of God were both outstretched. 
on a cross. And there was a mighty act of judgment, but the judgment fell not on God's enemies, but on God himself and the person of his son. Jesus redeems us to be God's people by dying for us. When you're wondering what God is doing, when you doubt his kindness, when you're struggling to trust him, when life gets harder rather than better, look to the cross. See how God himself bears his own judgment out of love for you to redeem you. Esther's words not only point us to the cross, they move us to this table.